Once upon a time, California's Central Valley was an inland sea, and it stayed this way for millions of years. Along with other marine animals, tiny creatures called diatoms and plankton lived and died in this sea, and then sank to the bottom. Over time, sediment from today's coastal mountain ranges and Sierra Mountains washed down into the sea from both sides. By about five million years ago, all this sediment had piled up to become the fertile soil of the valley. And below the sediment, time and pressure transformed the ancient layer of diatoms and plankton into the oil you can see being pumped at various sites in the valley. Indigenous peoples have lived in this place for at least 13,500 years. But the horizon-to-horizon -horizon agricultural landscape you see today, if you drive down the 5 or the 99, that's all very young. It's a product of massive engineering projects over the last 100 years. In this episode, and the next one, we'll explore how climate change is expected to affect the agricultural heartland of the state, the San Joaquin Valley region. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm your host, Shane Carter. In California's fourth climate change assessment, the San Joaquin Valley region includes all of San Joaquin, Stanislaus, Merced, Kings, and Tulare counties, plus parts of Madera, Fresno, and Kern counties. It stretches from Stockton in the north to Bakersfield in the south. About 4 million people live in this region, which is a little over 10% of the state population. Because its agricultural economy is so intimately connected to the physical environment, Climate change is going to have unusually profound effects on life in this part of the state. We're going to tackle this in two parts. First, in this episode, you're going to learn about how climate change is expected to affect air quality and heat in the valley. Then, the next episode will tackle the incredibly complicated topic of precipitation, both drought and flooding. To understand how climate change may affect day-to-day -day life in the San Joaquin Valley region, I spoke to six young people who live there. I asked them each to tell me about themselves and where they live. We'll start in the South. So my name is Yvette Flores. Um, I am 20 years old and I am from Bakersfield, California. So I am a student. Uh, I am studying political science uh, at Cal State Bakersfield. Um, and I also currently work for um, uh, the Current Annual Mono Labor Council, which is a council of unions. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do. I, I go to school usually in the morning, and then I work, and and then I, you know, do something for one of my thousand volunteer projects that I have. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like a basic day for me. I asked Yvette how she thinks you should imagine Bakersfield if you've never been there. The opposite of what you think California is, is what Bakersfield is. So it is a county whose economy is based on oil and agriculture, and there is no ocean around us. We live kind of, you know, inland. Geography affects the day-to-day -day life and economy in every region of California, but the connection is particularly clear in this part of the state. So it is incredibly hot in the summer. It gets like up to 115, which is lovely. Um, and we are surrounded by mountains, um, which make it so that um, 
you know, whenever there's a fire anywhere in the state, the air kind of collects there. So we have one of the most atrocious air quality in the entire nation. Uh, we actually got voted that like, you know, four or five years in a row now, which is great. Um, but yeah, it, it seems to be predominantly like people who live there either work in agriculture or in oil and um, the, the climate really is perfect to, to uh, grow things. We're the fruit basket of the entire nation pretty much. People all over the U.S. eat fruits, vegetables, and nuts grown in this region. 40% of the fruits and nuts and vegetables, in fact, grown in the U.S. come from the Central Valley. As a whole, California is the second largest dairy producer in the country, and much of that also comes from the San Joaquin region. About 30 miles north from Bakersfield is the town of Delano. Now, you may not know that name, but if you've ever heard the name Cesar Chavez, you might know a little about Delano. This is the town where Filipino-American agricultural workers first began a strike against grape growers in 1965. The mostly Latinx National Farm Workers Association, led by Chavez, voted to join their strike. It took five years plus a national boycott to get a union contract that improved pay and worker safety. And in that town, Delano, I met three people. My name is Elizabeth Barnes, and I am 14 years old, and I live here in Delano, California. One thing that people do not know about me is that I am multiracial. I am part African-American, part Mexican, part Filipino, and part Native American. Elizabeth spent her early childhood in Baltimore, Maryland, on the East Coast. She moved to Delano a few years ago, and she was surprised by the size of the local agriculture industry. Um, my mom did tell me that she was born in California, that she picked grapes for a living. Her family picked grapes. Her They worked in the fields. So I kind of knew some experience of the fields, but I didn't know like how big it was, like how large the amount was going to be, to be honest. I also met a high school junior. My name is Kristen Nunez. I'm 16 years old. So here in Toledo, it's nice, but it's a little small and the feeling here just doesn't feel so great. The air just isn't like what you should be breathing compared to other places. And it's more of a Hispanic community. So a lot of like mixed and everybody's like friendly here, but it's more of the environment, like what like you're experiencing, like the way you have to feel every time you come out, there's always a smell that's like from the wineries and it just, it doesn't feel so good. But other than that, like it's a good community. What's the smell from the wineries? What do you mean? The smell from the wineries, it's like, like rotten eggs. And it goes everywhere. Like sometimes it could get into other people's houses and the smell just isn't pleasant. Carissa's experience of the local economy mirrors what Yvette said. I, a lot of my family, they work in the fields. They uh, they go out or but sometimes it's nearby. And some of my family works for the wonderful company, agriculture. A lot of it's agriculture. And I know my mom, she works for the government. And my dad works for the oil fields. So it's kind of like a variety, but a lot of it's agriculture. Then, 10 more miles up the Route 99. My name is Ivan, and I'm from a, I'm from a little town called Erdemar, California, where there's only like 10,000 people. So right now, I'm a junior, and I'm currently taking college classes. So I graduate the agriculture business degree and associate's degree, and that's what I'm doing right now. Erlemart is an unincorporated community. That means it's within Tulare County, but not part of any city. 
my hometown is mostly like mostly like undocumented people so it's like right here is a lot of field workers you know that's that's where i come from are there stores or services or other kinds of stuff there in that town oh, oh yeah there's stores but like just recently like one or two years ago there was a mcdonald's built and a dollar general where's the closest grocery store the closest grocery store is is here it's like walmart but like when we really want to buy groceries the closest one is like we sell your biggest one because we go to costco how long does it take to get there from where you live? Like 30, 45 minutes. And what if you don't have a car? If you don't have a car, it's hard if you don't have a car because you have to take public transportation. And so that sometimes, it like, because there's a schedule to it, but sometimes they don't follow the schedule. So if, if you miss the bus, you have to wait like two hours. Because they're small and because their residents often don't have a lot of income, unincorporated communities can struggle to maintain crucial services like water because they can't afford to address water pollution issues or dig deeper wells when ground-level waters drop. These rural towns are the parts of the San Joaquin region that are already being hit hard by climate change. I asked Ivan to tell me more about the kinds of work his neighbors do. People, people work in the fields, like manual labor, or some people work like packing the product, or, or like in the, in the fields for males, you could work yourself up a ladder. There's like a ladder, you could work yourself up. But for females, there's not, there's not really a ladder to work yourself up. You stay in the same place, like same manual hand working. As you can imagine, these jobs are highly dependent on the natural environment. So variations in the weather can immediately and significantly affect people's income. My first four guides, Yvette, Elizabeth, Carissa, and Ivan, painted a helpful picture for us to begin to understand the geography and economy of the Central Valley. Combined with climate projections, we can start to imagine the future of the region. California's fourth climate change assessment only has a summary rather than a detailed report for this region, but I was able to combine climate-related reports from federal, state, and local agencies to identify predicted changes. The most important things to think about in this part of the state are air quality, heat, and drought. We're going to begin with air quality. I asked Ivan how he thought climate change would affect his hometown of Early Mart. Like right here, the Central Valley is already affected because like, we have the worst air in the whole country. We have the worst air because like, like companies, like they just like I don't know, they just like pollute the air. So like we have like our own sickness too. Like, and that, like, that's, like, that's, like, weird because, like, nobody else has it. We, we just get it, not nobody else. The sickness Ivan mentioned is called valley fever. Yvette explained more about both air quality in the region and also this disease. So we kind of live in, like, a bowl. Um, we have a mountain range surrounding us, um, which would be, like, really wonderful um, if we could see it all the time. But usually we can't see the mountain range because the air is so thick because the air collects in that bowl. Um, so, you know, all the air from up north comes down, all the smoke from up north comes down, and then all of the, the smoke from down south goes up. And so we end up with like really horrible air quality. Um, and recently, so th here's another issue that to throw into the mix. Uh, we had a terrible windstorm. It was awful. There's dust everywhere. And we have a really horrible problem with valley fever. Um, and I don't know if you've ever heard of valley fever, but it's absolutely terrifying. Uh, pretty much there's spores in the dust and when those dust particles get moved around by the wind and you breathe those in the spores get into your lungs and then you you end up experiencing like a, a terrible sickness and there's no cure 
there's very little research that that's being you know done we, we recently got like a, actually a grant like i think the city did or the state to study it a little bit more but it's just another issue that we have to deal with and you know it, it's it's all it's all interconnected <laughs> you know the fires and then the wind and then you know we have valley fever and it's just it creates a really horrible horrible environment it's extremely difficult to predict whether climate change will result in more windy days in the Central Valley. But changes to heat and precipitation may make it easier for the spores that cause valley fever to both grow and spread. The symptoms for the disease include things like fatigue, coughing, fever, and shortness of breath. Many people who get infected with the spores have no symptoms at all, or they recover within a few weeks or months. But about 5-10% to 10 of people develop long-term lung problems. In 1% of cases, the disease damages people's brain, skin, and bones. And as with most diseases, some people are more likely to develop symptoms than others. Valley fever poses extra danger to pregnant women and people with diabetes, among others. You're in the most danger of breathing in the spores if you work in a dry, dusty place, so clearly agricultural workers face high levels of exposure. As disturbing as valley fever is, it's only one of several air quality issues in the San Joaquin Valley region. About 90 miles to the northeast are the towns of Kalinga and Huron. Two high school students from those towns continued my introduction to the region. Um, my name is Luke. I'm 17 and I live in Kalinga, California. I love sports. I've played sports my whole life and so I feel really at home there, but I'm also really active in my school's theater program. And then I also take AP classes. So like the kind of community through those classes, I also am a part of. Luke's parents don't work in agriculture, but a lot of his community is also employed in that industry. I spoke to Luke online in the summer of 2020. So I asked him what he thought someone unfamiliar with California might notice about his particular town. One thing about Kalinga, like a lot of small towns, we have a really tight-knit community, but we're also pretty diverse. Like for me, as you know, I'm white and I've lived here my whole life, but the majority of my town is Hispanic. And so I feel like a lot of that diversity that I've experienced has is definitely like something that I feel like is unique about being in Kalinga and that a lot of that culture has... I guess, impacted me. And so when someone would come to visit here, I guess they'd kind of see that. But coming from like a small town, we don't have a ton of things to do here. Like we have a movie theater and that's mostly it in terms of like places to go to do things. So a lot of the time people will just drive around in um, like we have oil fields um, like on the edge of our town. So people like drive around through those or just, you know, go over to people's houses and play video games. But I think definitely one thing that is unique about like things to do in a small town is like people like people say, hey, you want to go drive and you'll just like drive in a car together and just drive around. All the people I spoke to in this region made it clear that local economies are intimately connected with the physical environment. Luke didn't mention air quality. Instead, his comments point to a different, more emotional connection. Socially, his community, like every community, is the result of both history and the physical environment. The cars, roads, and oil fields he mentions are all just artifacts of a bigger energy-intensive economy. We may not think much about those things day to day, but our cultures reflect our energy system. 
And if we succeed in moving to a different energy system, to a carbon-neutral future, our cultures will reflect that change too. I also talked to a young man who had just graduated from high school. Like almost everyone else in California's class of 2020, he spent the final months of school online. Hi, my name is Michael Diaz. I am 18 years old and I live in Huron, California. Well, I am a three-year drama student. I enjoy performing arts. I also am a decathlete. I spend my time studying material for academic decathlon. I love tennis. I'm a three-year varsity tennis player. Take college courses and I was able to obtain two AA degrees this past spring semester and was able to finish at the same time as high school. So I like challenging myself. Back before graduation, Michael was also a leader in his school's chapters of the California Scholarship Federation and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And his community engagement continued beyond school. In my community in Huron, I am a big part of our church. I, my parents are actually the reason that I am very involved in our church for we were born in, in our church, you know, growing with the Christian faith and, you know, always pushing us to uh, be part of church. And yeah, very thankful with God. I asked Michael to tell me what he sees when he steps out of his home. Are you the first thing you experience are the sound of the birds chirping and especially right now in the summer that immense heat and well basically you just see a lot of community interaction between the people who live here there are people walking riding their bikes we see a lot of a lot of people in agriculture walking home uh from a tiresome day trying to get uh, home to their children, to their houses. And of course, we have, uh, we're surrounded by nature. We're surrounded by the mountains. They, they say we're, we're surrounded by nothing because that's how we're recognized in, in the map because our name doesn't even appear in the map. But it's really, it's uh, really peaceful. So basically, we are surrounded by fields. Here, it's, it's just flat. It's just fields. It's fields of, of crops, fields of, of trees. It's just crazy how much, how much we have around us, how much fruit and how much vegetables and how much, you know, how much goods that this land provides for us. Michael's description of his hometown is a crucial part of this story. You can tell how much he loves both the neighborhood and the environment where he lives. And that's a reminder that as the climate shifts, people who live here are facing changes, not just to the weather, but to their whole way of life. The young people I spoke with have already had experiences that hint at how those future changes will feel. So, for example, like many California schools, Luke's campus in Kalinga uses a lot of outdoor space, and students go outside to get from one class to another. While I'm sure this outdoor space has been helpful during COVID, it's problematic when there are wildfires around the state, and climate scientists predict more, bigger wildfires in our future. I asked Luke if the fires had affected him and his classmates. There were days when, you know, fires were going on where PE was canceled, and, you know, like outdoor activities like sports practices were canceled, 
you really like were encouraged to get inside the classrooms pretty quickly, like not spend a lot of time like loitering, loitering around during passing period. And so if, you know, fires like that continue to happen, I could definitely see how that could really force us to like do an online thing or like completely change our school um, and like the way it's structured and built, like only use certain buildings that are indoor, you know, and I mean, I guess I haven't really thought about that too much. While some air quality problems are caused by natural events, others are not. Earlier, you heard Carissa express concerns about the air in Delano. Here she is again. There was a recent um, school that had to be evacuated because um, a field had sprayed too many pesticides, too much pesticides. And this led for people, this led people to faint and vomit. They felt lightheaded. And that school, it was um, Cesar Chavez, they had to go and evacuate because of it. Each type of pollution has a different relationship to climate change. So car and truck exhausts, emissions from oil production, emissions from livestock production, they all contain particulates that are bad for us to breathe directly. And then they also contain greenhouse gases that warm the earth. Our warmer planet is experiencing climate shifts, including an increase in heat waves. That heat accelerates the formation of ground-level ozone, which is also dangerous to breathe. Those climate changes are also predicted to increase valley fever and lead to more wildfires, which will generate more smoke. But what about pesticides? Around where we live, like I've told you, we live in uh, like fields and agriculture, and um, they spray a lot of stuff, like a lot of pesticides and different things. And we don't know if that in a way is kind of like affecting our, the, you know, the weather. My collaborator on this podcast was Nancy Freitas, a graduate student studying climate science at UC Berkeley. If you want to hear more about her and her work, you should listen to the episode called What is Climate Change? Nancy listened to my interviews with young people, and then we discussed them, and she helped me answer some of their questions. I think it was Michael who asked if pesticides also are leading to climate change. It's a, it's a good question. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I did not know the answer to it. So I did some research and I talked to some people who work in the agricultural field. And what I found and what I heard is that there's some pesticides that are fumigants, um, so they're sprayed, that can directly lead to the release of N2O. You may have encountered N2O, nitrous oxide, in a different circumstance, at the dentist's office, where it's sometimes called laughing gas. But N2O is the third most important greenhouse gas after carbon dioxide and methane. But my guess and the guesses of the people who I was talking to are actually that production, transportation, and application of the pesticides causes release of greenhouse gases in a much larger quantity than just the, their like direct spraying. Nancy's explanation reminds us that when we're analyzing how different products contribute to climate change, we need to include how something is made, how it is used, and in some cases, how it is disposed of. But it's also important to think about air quality, for example, from the perspective of human experience. Carissa doesn't have one set of lungs to breathe in the spores that cause valley fever, and then a second set of lungs to be affected by emissions from oil and gas drilling and vehicle exhaust. 
and then a third for inhaling pesticides, a fourth to take in ozone, and yet another for smoke from wildfires. Her one set of lungs takes in all those kinds of pollution, often at the same time. To help address this issue, the California Air Resources Board established something called the Community Air Protection Program in 2018. It's still in the early stages of setting up operations, but it is set up to focus first on improving air quality in communities where people are experiencing the worst cumulative impacts. If you live in this region and you want to find out more about how the program works, you'll need to contact the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District. I've included a link to that on the Future Imperfect webpage. So as you just heard, additional heat is one of the things that's predicted to worsen air quality. But heat will also have a direct impact on the people living in the San Joaquin Valley region. On the one hand, people in the area are used to heat. Here are Ivan and Michael. What happens here when it gets really hot? Like, what, what do you do to stay cool? Oh, we just stay inside the house and, like, blast the AC. Or, like, or in summer, we go to the pool. Or that's, we just stay inside. Because, like, nobody wants to go outside when it's, like, 116 degrees. Does everyone in your town have air conditioning? I don't think so. Not a lot of people go outside, and if they do, then they'll turn on their hoses and they'll get, like, you know, wet. They'll buy slip and slides. They'll have water balloon fights or, like, swim in their pools. Living here, you just get used to it and you just get the best out of it and try to find different ways to, you know, stay cool and enjoy it, embrace it. Within reason, a healthy human body can often acclimate to heat over a period of days and weeks. And this means many people can build up to playing or working in high heat, but not always. My cousin, he actually had a stroke when he was working in the fields and we ran to the hospital. We asked if he was okay. And the doctor told us it was a heat stroke and he wasn't, he couldn't go back to the fields until like it was done, like that the heat would be done for. So I feel like that the heat here in California, it causes many terrible accidents and that it can cause like a lot of things to happen to family members. In Delano, where Elizabeth lives, climate scientists are projecting that by 2100, average summer temperatures could increase by 9 to 11 degrees Fahrenheit. Winter averages may increase by 7 to 10 degrees. Average temperature, I want to remind you, is not what you experience each day. If it's 110 degrees Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then the temperature drops down to 70 for the last four days of the week, the average for that week was 87 degrees. You never felt 87 degrees, but 87 degrees sounds fine. 110, on the other hand, is pretty rough. And each day a heat wave continues, it becomes progressively more dangerous because of the prolonged stress of trying to cool down. The reason the average temperature is expected to rise is because scientists predict more heat waves. In fact, they predict 7 to 10 more heat waves each year. I want to go back here to something earlier in the show. Remember my conversation with Ivan about how far people in his town go to shop and what they do if they don't have a car? Now, picture a parent, maybe two kids, no car, or maybe the car is in the shop, heading off on a laborious, many hours long shopping trip by bus on a day when the thermometer tops 105 or 110 degrees. The more CO2 we emit globally, the more common those days will become, and the more difficult work and basic daily tasks will be. Here's Elizabeth again. It was mostly like, I feel like a year ago that in Delano that the highest temperature that I went up to was 110. And we had all of our coolers, they were running and nothing was working. Like 
And then it came to a point where our power went out and everybody else's went out and it was hot outside. So we didn't know what to do. Like my mom, she ran to, like she drove to um the store to buy some stuff because like since the power was out, like the food was gonna go bad. And so me, my brother and my stepdad, we were just outside standing out there. She, he ran the, um, the hose so that my brother could cool down because he was red. And we went to my grandmother's house because her house had some type of like system where she could raise like like the air to like a really high temperature so we went there we slept there for the night and then the next day it was cold so it was like it was a really big change and i was surprised like that was the first time that it ever happened to me that the temperature could go that high and a power outage happens at the same time it was like really surprising elizabeth experienced two things that we can expect more of First, the layered effect of a heat wave and a power outage at the same time. In some parts of the state, this is already happening regularly because power companies shut off the electricity during high heat events to keep power lines from sparking wildfires in certain areas. Other times, it's because electricity demand to run air conditioners exceeds the grid's capacity. And the second thing, that drop in temperature the next day, was an example of variability. And one more thing to note. Ivan, Michael, and Elizabeth all mentioned using water to help stay cool during hot weather. This is something to keep in mind if you listen to the next episode about San Joaquin Valley, where we'll talk about drought. I asked Carissa how she thought her hometown would be affected by climate change. For Delano, I feel like it's going to become more hotter. And I know that we're not really... We're maybe we're used to the heat already because we have family that, family members that work in the fields and they're just, they've adjusted to it, but the more hotter it gets, the more worse it's going to be outside for them, and that means they're not going to be able to work, and that's not earning any money, and it's hard to find a job here because there's not much. When do you expect to see those effects? Like, how old do you think you'll be? I feel like within the next five or ten years, something like that, like, may start to occur because it's already happening now, like, this summer, it felt more hotter and it felt long. And like that really built up my concern because I was just like, why? Like, why is this happening? So, yeah, I, I feel like soon, in like five to 10 years. Can you tell me a little bit more about like what concerns you or when you worry about it? Sort of what are you picturing about the future that's worrisome? I picture it hard for me and my family to like maintain our life. And it really like builds my concern because I I think about death because like we don't know what's gonna happen and that scares me, the thought scares me. And I want to be able to live my life in a healthy environment and if we're not able to, it's just going to make my life expectancy shorter. And that's what really does scare me. I, I want to live the longest life possible. I want to clarify here so you don't misunderstand. Scientists are not predicting some sort of global cataclysm in five or ten years. Different communities around the world and across California will experience climate change differently. By comparison to other residents of the state, California's frontline communities, which includes Carissa, Elizabeth, and Ivan, will experience the most intense layering impacts from air pollution, heat waves, and loss of income. A lifetime of those impacts can add up, and yes, they can cause a person to die younger than if they lived in healthy circumstances. 
So planning for this additional heat is important. How that discussion happens is going to differ from one community to another. What do you think the appetite would be in Bakersfield for cooling centers or to, you know, plant trees to create shade or whatever types of things the city looked at? I think it depends on how it's being framed. If, let's say, someone went to the Board of Supervisors and said, hey, we, we want money to, you know, combat climate change, that would not never pass. If uh, we stated it as we want cooling centers and we want, you know, trees being planted everywhere, then I, I think that there would be a likelihood that, that people would really buy into that. But in terms of stating, hey, we're fighting climate change, let's have cooling centers, that, I don't think that would ever work in, in the political sphere that we have in Kern County currently. So we've talked about air and heat, but we haven't really touched on the biggest question for people in this region. Here's Ivan. I was like, one question that I always had, like, how does ag affect it and how could we, like, improve, improve it? As, as all of these students know from firsthand experience, agriculture is directly connected to the soil. It is directly connected to the water input and it is directly connected um, to atmospheric temperature. And I mean, I thought it was really incredible to hear their descriptions of family members and cousins and, you know, experiences being around fields and and or working in them. And so they, they know in a more integral way than I do, actually, um, about how changes in those inputs, fertilizer, soil nutrients, water, atmospheric temperature, affects crops in their area, right? So if, if any of those inputs change dramatically or even a little bit, it could affect the yields that they are seeing. And not only will it affect the yields, if yields are affected then jobs are affected. And if jobs are affected, then the economy in these areas has the potential to take a hit. And those are things that all of these students have already seen happen. And you know, whether or not they immediately connected it to climate change, you know, these, these weather patterns are adding up in their areas. So those inputs, if we think about, let's say, drought affecting water, we know that climate change may cause the timing of rainfall to change. And if the timing of rainfall changes or the amount of rainfall changes, then our ability to store that water as it runs off um, into dams or into reservoirs um, is different than it used to be. And it might decrease, right? So if water decreases, then our ability to produce crops decreases. This is why life in the San Joaquin Valley region is so immediately vulnerable to climate change. Changes in climate affect water, soil, temperature, all things that can alter harvests and, therefore, people's livelihoods. Earlier, you heard about the impacts of heat on humans. Like new precipitation patterns, temperature variability is also going to have a tremendous impact on agriculture. So, for example, warmer winters will probably significantly decrease yields for cherries because they need a certain number of hours each winter when temperatures are between 32 and 50 degrees. Other crops will be negatively affected, too. The heat is also predicted to cause cattle to grow less and dairy cows to produce less milk. In many cases, the range where crops do best will shift somewhere else in the valley or to other parts of the state. Climate change also intersects with the highly technological aspects of modern industrial agriculture, like the selective breeding and genetic engineering of seeds. If we're expecting climate change to result in increases of insect activity, increases of pests, then 
The response, what we've seen in the last few years, is that these huge agricultural companies who are are breeding seeds that have become very widespread um, for production of food, breeding seeds with very specific genetic qualities um, to combat pests may be overwhelmed by a different kind of pest that they were not prepared for. And so as a result, maybe we're going to be applying more insecticides, more herbicides to our fields with these crops, we're, we're narrowing the genetic, their genetics and we're, we're having them address very specific things, but climate change is actually broadening in terms of the impacts that it might have. What's clear is that in the Central Valley, climate change is going to alter both day-to-day life and the economy in very important ways over the coming decades. As you've learned, air quality and heat will have significant impacts on people, both directly and indirectly. But as complicated as these effects are, the toughest issue is water. In the next episode, we'll take a look at how changing precipitation patterns may affect life in the San Joaquin Valley region. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about heat and air quality, check out the Future Imperfect page at calgloboled.org. You'll find a link to the State Climate Change Assessment Summary, plus lots of articles about the topics mentioned in this episode. You might also want to check out an upcoming episode about water in California. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.